Welcome to the Extra Podcast. This is episode number 227. I'm getting a nod from the producer. 227. Do you think anyone really cares? Way to be prepared, Greg. Thank you. What number it is. Anyway. Uh, Joining me around the prestigious plaid table is Pastor Andy. I'm here, present. Pastor Jeff. Oh, yeah. And Pastor Ezra. I'm here. So I have a question for you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, setup, the setup now is that we all have our own microphone and we're all sitting in front of it and we have ear ear. Pieces. We have like headphones. Headphones. On. Thank you. Has this made it more fun? Um, it's it's less uh, hackneyed. It's less uh, bush league. That better? Like we look like we could be on radio. We do. Uh, the thing I don't like is I am hearing myself. <clears throat> So it, it creates, it's very awkward. Mm. You know, there's, there's a different... Is, this is what we feel like all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't like listening to my, my voice. You we, know. Know, we know what you mean. Hey, who, <laughs> can we vote right now? Who looks the dumbest with their headset on? Extra does. I think Andy takes the cake. <laughs> Andy looks pretty bad. Are you kidding me? Andy looks pretty terrible. <laughs> Well, the headphones uh, don't do a whole lot for you. No, it's true. <laughs> feeling, uh, the, feeling the love, boys. So we, we have some great questions here sent in from some of our listeners. This one is, is basically about what's a good game plan for studying the Bible? How, how is it that we can um, study the Word for ourselves? What's a good mix between studying the Bible just itself and using commentaries to help us? So for the average listener out there, what would you guys encourage them to do as they're wanting to study their Bible? Uh, I would encourage them uh, to start by reading a, a section, What to pick your section of Scripture that you want to read, and then start reading that and try to read it in several different translations in English. Uh, and if you know another language, read it in that translation in the other language. Sometimes the there are words in the original languages, Greek or Hebrew, that translate a little bit better sometimes to Spanish or German or something like that. So the more exposure you can get to the passage, uh, the better. So I'd start by reading it. The second thing I would say is I would start asking questions about the passage. So if you have... Uh, this is something Jeff does, by the way, I when do. he prepares for a sermon. Absolutely. So I would I would ask just a myriad of questions of the passage, things that you might even think that you know. It's not just questions that you'd say, "Well, I already know the answer to that question." Ask it any ask it anyway, because you might find that the use of that word or the phrase that you thought that you knew about when you actually do this study has a wider frame of meaning than what you what what you had assumed. So what I mean is, is for example, uh, this this week, I'm studying a passage where it says that Paul is um, the the Spirit moves him, or he's he's uh, driven by the Spirit to to go to Jerusalem and then Rome. So I have a question about that. Well, first of all, what does that mean that he's driven by the Spirit? And what Spirit is this? Paul's Spirit or is this the Holy Spirit? That's a legitimate question. There's a difference. Maybe the two are working in tandem, but what does Luke mean when he writes that? That's what you want to find out. There's a parallel text that's used in another portion of Acts that seems to indicate that, uh, that it's the Holy Spirit. And when Paul recounts the story in, in, uh, in Romans 15, we end up finding out that it's actually, he's compelled by the Holy Spirit. So, I, like it's, so that's the way you'd answer that question. 
But I'd start by asking that question, asking as many questions as I possibly could about the passage, and then I'd go back through and I'd try to answer them as I'm going through the passage. So you're kind of writing your own like small group Bible study. Well, there's some great study Bibles, in fact, that can help you to navigate what scriptures to go to next. Right, but I wouldn't necessarily jump to the study Bible before I had asked the questions and tried to tried to do a little bit of work on my own. There is a joy of discovery that takes place when you study the Bible, and you don't want to give away that joy by just reading someone else's commentary on it all the time. You will go to the commentaries. You absolutely will, but... but Try to do your your own work first by asking questions. Okay, well, what does that word mean in this context? Don't just assume you know what the word means. Or, yeah, I mean, simple things like like uh, on our Thursday theology class last week, I was taught we were talking about <clears throat> a passage in John six, where where it says that uh, no one can come to the Father except except that I draw him. Says Jesus, right now I'll raise him up on the last day. So. A question I would ask about that passage is, 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 this, is this something that happens to everybody? Is, is this drawing that Jesus is talking about happening to everybody? Or, or is it just a few? Uh, you might come to that text and assume one of those answers, but I, I'd ask the question nonetheless, and then I'd look at the context to try to figure out whether or not it's, it's talking about everyone. Um, so... So that kind of that kind of thing. So I'd ask the question. So read read it first, second, ask questions, third, answer those questions, and then the fourth thing for me is to put together a final, uh, just sort of a final statement about what the whole of the passage is about, not what each particular section is about, but like what's the whole, what's it trying to say generally. And the reason I'm saying that is because you're kind of when you're reading the passage at the beginning, you're kind of looking at the forest. And then when you ask the questions and answer them, you're sort of looking at the trees, and then you want to come back out to the forest level so that you understand that the author has like a wider purpose than just the specific. You can get lost in there talking about whether or not this word means that and cross-referencing it to every other place in the Bible. Would you Do you have um, Bible <coughs> translations that you would recommend? Like you mentioned earlier, saying that, hey, you know, you want to read a passage in maybe two or three different translations. Mm-hmm. Are there some that you would say to the listener, you know, this one's a good one, and this one is a good one, um, that you'd recommend? Some are going to be more interpretive than others. So the way it kind of works, and I'll use the big, the big translations, is the least interpretive, <clears throat> most literalistic translation that I, that I know of these days would be the ESV, the English Standard Version, or the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. The, the New American Standard would be in that group, too. Would you think the New American Standard be a little more literal? Oh, it is. It's wooden, very wooden. ESV's a le- little bit less wooden, but those are the those are the gr- those are the ones that I would say they're really close to the Greek and Hebrew, like word for word. They've tried to take the actual words in Greek and Hebrew and translate them into single words in English. Um, the NIV is less uh, wooden. It reads better. Uh, and it still is a very, very close to the Greek and Hebrew, but it does what we call dynamic equivalence, meaning that there might be a, fra- a word in English, or sorry, word in Greek that is translated best by an idea in English, right? So they're more dynamic with the language. We're not just looking for one word and we're going to translate it with one word. We look for one word, sometimes might get a phrase or an idea in Call English. A thought for thought. Yeah, thought for thought translation. But I would read that one, too, because it's a little more interpretive, right? The people are taking a little more liberties in terms... And then the New Living Translation is the one that I would add to, the, to this mix, because I think the New Living 
does a really good job. It's the most interpretive, but it's the best reading Bible that I know of around. I would not use the Amplified, uh, mostly because it makes a fundamental error, what we call... Um, uh, it's a make, makes a fa, uh, an, what we call it's called an exegetical fallacy, uh, called uh, oh it's totally escaping me now. It's when you throw all of the meanings of a word into the mm. word in that's place. Do you guys remember what, what I'm talking about? By the way, uh, D. A. Carson wrote a great book called Exegetical, exegetical Fallacies. Yeah, <laughs> which if you like Greek and Hebrew and stuff, especially Greek, you you would, would you would enjoy that. But um, yeah, illegitimate totality transfer. There it is. Boom. You learned that today. Well, good fun, eh? That means go. that when you take all the meanings of a word, because every word's got lots of d different meanings in its different context, right? I can use the word stop, and I can make it mean lots of different stuff in different contexts, right? Um, um, well, maybe not stop, but there are words that, that do that. Well, if I took all those different meanings and I just like dropped them on one word in its context and said, well, every time this word shows up, all those meanings are also showing up. That's, mm -hmm. that's what we call illegitimate totality transfer. It's not true that authors use words in their context specifically, always use them specifically in that context. And the way you figure out what that word means in that context is by the context itself. So anyway, my... My my point is that uh, the ES or the um, the Amplified Bible does this everywhere. This is all it does. Whenever you read the Amplified Bible, have you guys ever seen where it's got the stuff in the parentheses? Mm -hmm. That that's all the meanings of that word, and it's sort of like, hey, just pick which one you like here. It's not that's not actually the way it goes. So I I don't read the Amplified. Um, I I usually stay away from the Living Bible because it's it's so it's not even close. Quite honestly, to a lot, a lot of um, I shouldn't say it's not even close. There, there are places where it really diverges off of what the original meanings were. That's why the New Living is much better. Message, the, the message? message I don't use uh, because it's actually the paraphrase of it's. It's just Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible. Sometimes the language is nice, mm -hmm. but I, I, it's not helpful in understanding what the scriptures mean. The furthest away from the text I usually want to get is the New Living. But I think it's. I actually think I usually recommend people to have a New Living Bible so that they can they can just read it. If you just want to sit down and read the Bible, do that. Hey, by the, by the way, I think it's important for people to realize that language is constantly evolving; it's constantly in change, and so it's important. These translations are important. Oh yeah, it's important to catch the the you know words have you know meanings that that are they're changing over time and we want bibles right. bibles constantly need to be translated oh totally and and that's that I mean we we know that the way the word gay is used and was used in the past meaning happy and now meaning homosexual it 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 just changes over time and so there might be translations of the bible that talks about these people being gay but they were written in the you know 18 whatever and that right. that that meaning is completely different now. So we wouldn't use that word to mean that now because it just doesn't have the same kind of cultural force that it once did. Mm -hmm. uh, there were lots of words like that. In fact, it's one of my problems with the ESV at places. Sometimes it uses words that, I, that we just don't use anymore in our culture. And uh, that the, to me, the NIV does a better job there. Um, one other translation that's really neat is called the New English Translation, the Net Bible. And the reason is if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, it gives you like little notes on why they translated stuff that way. And so if you know just a little bit of Greek or Hebrew, you might be able to follow along with what they're trying to say, why they made that translation choice and stuff like that. And you mm -hmm. can you can use the Net Bible online and it has a lot of different study tools built into the website itself. Yeah. And you can access other translations. Netbible.org, I think, is yeah. that one. It's it's excellent. 
if uh, if you really want to get even more, you know, deep into like what's the you know literal like word for word, there's the Bible called the Interlinear Bible that you can take a look at as well. The linear, yeah, interlinear. Yeah, and some of them, some of those interlinear Bibles will also have other. Uh, Translations, but if you don't it. know any Greek or Hebrew, it's just going to look like chicken scratch, though, on a page with w- English words underneath it. Right, and it's so going, it's you, going exactly. You need, you need to word know. For word. You need to know actually. But one of the th- Greek or Hebrew. One of the things I was going to mention with you know these translations is the the whole point uh, of reading our Bible is is, and I think this, this is some, one of those things that a lot of people in the church forget is is we want to know what the author is saying. We want to know what the author's intent is, and and is this reading our Bible is not about you know how does this make me feel or what do I think about this particular passage. I want to know what that author was saying and what was the message they were seeking to get across, and that's why translations are important. That's what good listening is, by the way. <clears throat> like, to, that's not an outrageous idea. The way we interpret the mean, the, the way we interpret a communication act, whatever that act is, Greg yelling at me this morning, uh, Ezra giving me a dirty look. These are all communication acts. Those, those acts and their meaning are derived from the, the creator or author of those acts, right? So Ezra's mm-hmm. look gets to be defined by Ezra. Now, I might misunderstand his look. This is why we argue with our spouses, this, right? Because we sometimes, or with other people, we think, oh my gosh, did you see the way that he looked at me? And we attribute certain meanings to Ezra that might not be there. Um, but the person who gets to determine the meaning of any act is is Ezra, and good listening, good hermeneutics, good good interpretation of any communication act, not is, just your Bible. No, is always looking for the meaning that is intended by the author. That's right. If you want to solve a lot of your relational challenges, just ask the author of the communication act what they meant by that act, without freaking out first. You yep. say, Ezra. I noticed that you looked this way earlier. I don't know if you meant that. The way I understood you to be doing is this way. Is that what you meant? And Ezra, of course, would be like, no, I didn't mean that at all. I, I just, I was thinking about this other thing. thing I didn't, and I'll be like, oh, okay. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Right? But, but this is what I'm doing. You're doing that in Bible study. It's all you're doing is trying to figure out what the author means by the, by well, the Communication Act. Well, naturally, we do that. Like you're saying, we do that in conversation all the time. But even when we're reading a novel or something, I mean, we're constantly employing a hermeneutic, yeah. a science of interpretation. The problem that I notice is that for some reason, when people come to their Bible, they throw it all out the window. Yeah, it's a and, magic book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now, all of a sudden, it's this book that's all about me. Right. Well, it's a, yeah, it's a magic book. And if I take this verse, I can mean it. It can mean anything. And then we say we justify that by saying, well, the Holy it's not just a human book, it's the Holy Spirit authored it too. Yeah, but the Holy Spirit authored it through humans. Right. <laughs> right. They they did. And the, the At if a you, spe- specific time to a specific right. people. And if you understand the human author's intent with that passage, you are understanding a large part of the Holy Spirit's intent. The Holy Spirit might take something that the human author didn't know about at that time, so used a phrase, for example, in Psalm 22, that is picked up later by the gospel writers to show how Jesus is the one who's on the cross. Actually, he cites Psalm 22, he says, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. Well, the psalm writer didn't intend that at the time, but the Holy Spirit picked up that language and used it in the uh, the gospel writer's language and voice to make a theological point now. 
So that's where we mean that the Holy Spirit has a is is an author that kind of supersedes all the other things and puts the pieces together. There's no question about that. But we always start with the intent of the author in that location. And always. One of the one of the best ways to not figure out the author's intent is to start with a word, or a, or a verse. You know, like it's funny. Like if you were to misinterpret a conversation, you would hone in on one word. Mm. But if you want to get the intent of the author, what, what's happening in a conversation, we take the whole into to effect. And so what you want to look at is the, you want to start, at what I call this is there's the worm's eye view, which starts with the word, goes to verses and builds from there. Or there's the bird's eye view that takes the book, goes to chapters, you know, pericopes, and verse. Pericope is a section. Yeah, like it's a thought in, or, or paragraph in Greek. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then you go to a word, maybe, you know, maybe, but not necessarily. Right, because you're, you're seeking, what is the author communicating? Well, it's funny, in our culture, you guys have ever watched, uh, I mean, I'm sure you watch, like, I watch a lot of sports news and stuff, I love sports, and I'm always, I'm always intrigued to, by the way that uh, a manager or a coach's or a player's words are construed largely by the media, when I've seen, I've seen the whole, say, of the, of the, of the, uh, press conference the interview with the right yeah. so they interview the guy and they ask a question like so so what do you what do you think of your opposing manager today and you you might say oh, it wasn't his best day and then the 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 language that that line that little snippet it wasn't his best day will be the lead on the on the paper on, in the on morning. The paper in the morning. Even though you might have said a thousand things of positive after him and said after it and said, "Well, it wasn't his best day because he's normally such a great manager. He made a tactical decision that wasn't the greatest one, and I think he'd admit that too." And whatever. <laughs> like the next day, it's this massive, blown up, huge because they got to sell papers, right? And they want to construct these big arguments going on. When the I, you can imagine being a manager, you're like, "My goodness, that's crazy." Why? That's did not what I said. Out? This is what politicians do. Competing mm -hmm. politicians do, right? I hear you say one little line that's com that's out of con you know. I take it in context; it makes some sense. But I know that it's going to get me some political capital if I rip it out of context and make it say what I what how bad it actually sounds, right? Mm -hmm. You think that all Japanese people are stupid? You know, like no, I didn't say something like that. Right. And yeah. they they build it up, and it drives us crazy when we hear it, and we think it's. <clears throat> think it's horrible when people do that to each other and yet man isn't that what the, like we do that with the bible every day <laughs> all the time that's all we ever do you can imagine sometimes i think paul's up in heaven going what what <laughs> i didn't mean it that way what? you crazy person stop it you see one of the i i was listening to um an old testament professor his name is john walton he's a remarkable old testament scholar and so he was teaching a group of people um, something about the Old Testament and all that and taking them through a reading um, schedule. And anyway, so he was saying that as you read the Bible, there'll be many parts of the Bible that you will not understand. And as you're trying to study it, you may not understand. And a lot of people get there and they abandon their reading. They abandon their studying because they're like, ah, this book is just too complex. I cannot understand it. And they abandon and what Walton was telling the people, his students, was, no, keep reading. There'll be places you don't understand. That's fine. You know, you can put a question mark on your Bible or just circle the verses that you don't understand. But keep going. Just keep going. Over time, as you deepen in your walk with God, as you grow in grace, 
those parts that were fuzzy for you will get clearer and clearer as you begin to now put the pieces together. It's almost like walking away from a huge picture. The so the more the the the, the further you just move back and look at the whole the clearer the image becomes for you. Well, and sometimes the authors, too, just clarifies farther in the chapter. Right. If yeah. you would have just kept reading. But you know what it's like when yeah. you get to know somebody new? You don't know. Like, I didn't know Ezra a number of years ago, and when we first met, I didn't always know where he was exactly coming from or what kind of viewpoints he was having. I didn't know his background. I didn't understand kind of some of his life story or how he used words or phrases. But now I do. And now when he says stuff, uh, someone else might come along who's new and say... say I mean, this happens to me all the time. I'm very sarcastic, right? You know, be, uh, people in our office come along who are new. They end up saying, man, what's his deal? What's Jeff's deal? And they come to you guys and ask that kind of question. Like, is he just awful? <laughs> and I hope you say, and well, I know you say, oh, you don't, you don't understand. <laughs> Jeff's just messing around with all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you, you just need to know that that's, that's what he's like. So my point is you get to know an author through their communication acts. You get to know an author and understand their intent by by spending more time with them. So the more time you spend reading Paul, the more time you spend reading Luke, the more time you spend reading John, the more you get to know their particular nuances, how they use language a little bit, how different they are from each other. And you can get to know the authors through through the text itself. And eventually, you kind of are like, oh, I see. Yeah, this is the way he talks, right? Mm This is this is how it goes, I and mean, you learn that about about Jesus and the kind of hyperbole mm-hmm. they used in those days, right? Mm-hmm. The overstatement, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't cut off your hand and gouge out your eye, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, we don't mm-hmm. talk like that quite no. as much as the, as they do. No, but you get to know them because they're from a different culture, and it's it works out really well in the end because you can you, you just know what they're like. Mm-hmm. Can can I just add one last one in yep. here that and then I, we're going to move on? When I talk with young adults, I, I find that a lot of them make this mistake: is they when they're reading the Bible, they think that the author is just take the Gospels. I know I mentioned this the other day. They'll just think that the the author is trying to remember different things. Say we're in the Book of Acts right now, right? right? So Luke's just trying to remember what happened, and then he's haphazardly writing down as he remembers yeah. what happened. Oh yeah, oh and, yeah, and that happened. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh and then this happened, right? No, oh, no, no, I left this piece out. Yeah, you got to remember that the authors of the Bible, they are making an argument. Mm. And they they are picking specific stories mm. for a specific purpose in their communication. This is not haphazard. Right. So one of the questions that I would ask of a passage of Scripture is one of the first ones is, why is this passage here in relation to the what's around it? Mm. So yeah. that's a question that I would ask. Why say, does the so author tell why, the story? Yeah. Why does, he, why does he put this one here after that last one and before the one that comes after? What's he trying to do? How does this mm-hmm, connect exactly. with what came before and what comes after? Mm-hmm. All right, we have another question that has to do with uh, a, a passage in Luke, uh, chapter 10. And the question is about verse 19, but I'm going to read the, the section 17 to 20. So here's the passage. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so the listener wrote in asking about verse 19 in particular that says, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And they ask, Is this phrase that's being spoken to the 72, being spoken to us as well. 
or is this just for the disciples that he was speaking with at this moment? It's a great question, by the way. I mean, a great, a great Bible study question. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I just want to affirm it because it's 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 asking a legit question. It recognizes that some of the things that are said in the scriptures are spoken to people who are not us. So when God speaks to Abram and says, "I will make you a great nation," that that is not a promise to Greg Harris and his progeny. Right, so Greg, I, should, I shouldn't have no, that verse on Greg, my wall. Should, well, unless you unless you want to remember God's faithfulness to this man in the promise that He's given, then that's where it has meaning for us, right? It establishes God's character as the kind of God who brings, who gives promises and fulfills them. But it's not a promise directly to you, as a, as an individual. There are places in the Gospels, right, where, for example. Uh, can't remember in which particular text it is, but it talks about it. it uh, I think I want to say John 16. Uh, I will lead you into all truth mm. is the language that's used. If you look at the context, the it's actually talking about what God's going to do, what Jesus is going to do through his apostles. There's some other stuff that he says in that context that you would not apply to you because you're like, well, obviously he's just talking to them. But we like to apply that other part directly to us. And I'm just saying that that... That no, that he's going to lead them into all truth, and that's probably an endorsement of of the New Testament at that point because they're the ones who end up writing it. So yeah, it's a great question, but I will let the others talk about how they answer it. So see, when it comes to stepping on scorpions and all that stuff and never being harmed, see, I think um, Jesus had sent this. Uh, Jesus had sent the seventy two out. To, to minister and to reach out and all that, they come back and they give this report about these great things that are taking place and they're so um, overwhelmed or remar- like this is a remarkable thing that we are, we are able to come against the power of the enemy, uh, the power of the dark world. And Jesus, I think here when he says, I saw Satan fall, he's affirming the, he's affirming the, that Satan, Satan's power and Satan's authority is diminished as compared to God's power and authority. And so as people are going out to proclaim Christ, will Satan's authority, uh, will Satan's uh, power uh, be a barrier to the gospel? And so when he's talking about um, uh, scorpions and serpents and things like that, I... I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that in the ancient world, scorpions and serpents were like imagery they would use for things that are evil, all things demonic, all things evil. Well, I'm, I'll go further than that. I actually think that this language is being drawn from Genesis as well. Mm-hmm. I was going to say right? the same thing. So, yeah. so what you're getting here is you're getting some imagery that's being brought forward from Genesis where yes. the promise is that the serpent will strike at your heel, but you will crush his head. Yes. And so this this is being picked up by Jesus, and you can tell, by the way, that he is talking not about necessarily the literal serpents and scorpions, but he's talking more about the power of the enemy Yes. that, ha- that those serpents and scorpions stood for in that culture mm-hmm. by the language that is that right is there, used, and it's over all the power it. of the enemy. It's yes. what he's talking about is the power of Satan. Yes. Right? That's the context here. And yes. so... And so uh, we we don't have that kind of connection with serpents and scorpions in our culture right mm-hmm. now than they do. So mm-hmm. if you if you got a snake near your house and you go running out and try to stomp on it, I'm not I'm saying this passage is not guaranteeing you great victory. What this passage is guaranteeing is that is that the kingdom of God's son 
will be victorious. Over. Over. And it's mm-hmm. being expressed through the 72 missionaries. And I would say, yeah, it's being expressed through the missionaries who are in northern India today. Exactly. It's being expressed in all sorts of places as, yes. as God wins these victories over and over again against over the powers. Yeah. So what we would say then, this passage is not encouraging the Christian to go into a snake-infested uh, environment and start grabbing snakes and scorpions thinking that they will not sting you or bite you. you know, That's the, not the intent of the author I, I, here. I think the physical things are a symbol of the spiritual things in this exactly. case. Exactly. So I'm saying that the physical mm-hmm. stuff of the serpents and scorpions um, it, it actually has a... They have spiritual meaning. And yes. I mean, I'm getting it's that injured. from verse 20, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Yes. So I'm I'm linking the treading on serpents and scorpions, and he's in the next verse saying, well, this, that, that means the spirits are subject to you. Mm-hmm. So I would be inclined to think that there's probably some kind... There you, I mean, was it the ancient world, the spirit of Python? Mm-hmm. Right. That was one of the, mm-hmm. one of the great uh, spirits that in Acts, uh, Paul casts out a demon mm-hmm. where the woman... Was it a woman who had a the spirit of Python? Yeah. And these animistic cultures as well, like this, this is huge. Like for them, one of the... And, and we also, we see this even now in doing mission work in animistic cultures. The big question is just how powerful is your God? Right, I mean, it, yeah. th- this is one of the big fears. I mean, yeah. th- that spirits are real and they're and they're worried about those, and that it's significant that Jesus is saying that you know that that and as a Christian, we that we believe that God is more powerful than these spirits, mm-hmm. and and here um, here we're seeing that that they're being sent out, and they're being sent out with power, and I think for us in in our you know postmodern culture, if you will, verses like this don't have the same sort of punch. That they that they have in other cultures. We yeah. don't link the spiritual significance of a serpent and a scorpion mm-hmm. to what they do. Yeah, exactly. So when Jesus says this, I think he's assuming his, his listeners understand that spirit or the scorpions and serpents were seen as being little, many many gods. They were yes. seen as being many demons. Yeah, and so he's he's saying that we don't have that same kind of link between those two things. If we did, I'd say yeah. It, it, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a direct link there. Yeah, but it's not the case. Mm-hmm. No. But we would say, we would say, Jesus wins. E- exactly. That's yeah, what exactly. We would absolutely you would. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then what do you? What happens with the text, like in in Mark in Mark's Great Commission, where we would apply the Great Commission to all believers? Wh- where so where Mark, are you? Mark sixteen, starting in verse fifteen. Ooh. And Mark, and he said to them, so, "Go." Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Right. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Sure. In my name, they'll cast out demons, they'll speak in new tongues, they'll pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Yeah. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So, so what about that? That seems to be more applied to to everyone, because we apply the Great Commission to Totally. I'm going to challenge Mark 16's use here. Uh, and say that I don't think that Mark 16, verses 9 to uh, 20 are in the Bible. <gasps> so uh, listen, every Bible that you have, a- a- anybody who's reading a Bible along here will notice that they put brackets around this. And the reason they put brackets around this is because most scholars, in fact, the, the vast majority of them, I, in fact, I don't even know of any that argue that this is original. 
that it's it's just not. Uh, you might say, well, why do they include it in the air? Because there's a tradition of people having it in English Bibles, and they put it in brackets because they want to say the earliest manuscripts do not do not have this. In fact, there's a couple different versions of it. You have the the what I think is the original ending of Mark, which is ends in verse eight, and then you have the which means that the earliest manuscripts have that. Okay, then you have much later manuscripts that end up including like a somewhat longer version, and then you have the whole longer version. So some of the manuscripts don't even include the part that we just read. Some include portions of it, whatever. But almost everybody agrees that this is not original. So, so again, I, I believe that God inspired, and I, I believe that the that the New Testament is inerrant in its autographs, meaning in its original writings. Yeah. that Mark wrote, mm-hmm. those verses aren't in it. So I'm not going to—I I don't even want to debate the doctrine here, because in the end, it's, it, it, is a, it, it is an added piece that came by some scribe later on that was picked up by some, some portions of the Church, included in some of, the, some of the manuscripts later, and has now been used by lots of people in lots of churches to say that they can hold snakes and stuff and not have them bite them. Particularly in the Appalachian. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that if you just did what we call some good textual criticism, you'd find that this is just not in the Scriptures. There you but go. It was like a year or two ago that a guy died yeah. doing that. It was on the news. Really? Yeah. Well, look, yeah. I mean, I, just to be provocative, I'll say John 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery is not in the Bible either. So now someone's going to write about that, and that's great. You should ask a question about that. But it's the same. It's the same issue. Remind the people te- what, what textual which, which story you're talking so about. So it's the woman who's caught in adultery, uh, who Jesus, Jesus saying, draws in the stones. sand. He draws in the sand, and uh, it's just—it's not there. It's not in John's he asks original. Who, who's without sin? Now listen, I'm not saying the that this stone. story might not have ever happened. It might have. It might have just been some story that was had a tradition behind it and whatever. But it's, it wasn't in John's book. It wasn't there. When he first wrote it, it wasn't some somebody threw it in because they thought it was a really neat story and would fit in this sort of spot. And so, like, if we're going to try to derive theology from it, though, I'm going to say, well, it's a neat tradition about Jesus, but I don't derive theology from neat traditions about Jesus. I, I derive theology from the Word of God, which John those verses in John eight are not. So, so there's a provocative statement for lots of people to chew on. There you go. And then on that note, let's move on to our... Well, this will be our last question for, for today. Uh, let your little Thanksgiving dinner table context here. Uh, an atheist family member adamantly told me that Christians can't have tattoos because if you have a tattoo, you're not a Christian. And his argument isn't limited to tattoos because he says it will also extend to ownership of slaves and wearing unmixed clothing because all of these things are in the Bible as commandments. So the question is, Mm. what is the most concise way of explaining to someone that Christians today don't follow all of the Old Testament laws, but that we are still required to obey some? Uh, The most concise way that I have is to say that Jesus is the uh, the end of the law. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law, but the word is telos. He is the goal of the law. So Christ fulfills the Old covenant law, the Mosaic covenant law, which mm-hmm. is what we're referring to, and he keeps some aspects of it in place. And so we follow the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2, and so that means that some portions of the Mosaic covenant are not parts of what we are called to follow. No. There are some debates about which parts those are, 
but I, I would say that the Mosaic Covenant is fulfilled in Christ and that the law of Christ is what we follow today. Mm. And he doesn't bar people from having tattoos. Although you would want to push back on me and say, well, but does he, does he say that that part is done away with? Because you have Matthew 5 saying, not a jot or tittle of this is going to be passed away, this law is passed away. But that's pointing out that Jesus is going to come and fulfill the law. How do you feel about the distinction between a ceremonial law and a moral law? Yeah, so Reformed thinkers have been doing this for quite a long time. They've been trying to, they, they would say there's a civil, ceremonial, and moral, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. The challenge I have with the, the, the breakdown is that the law itself doesn't mm-hmm. do that. Right? I mean, like the people who first heard the law didn't think to themselves, well, that's the ceremonial piece, and that's the civil piece, and that's the moral piece, and the moral piece is the enduring part. I, I, I understand, and I think there's some merit in seeing it that way. I just don't know if the law itself separates so easily out into those pieces. I guess the thing that I've always thought that made sense is that not everything in the ceremonial law is clearly a moral law, right. such as mixing of fibers. No, that's right. Oh, there's lots of things like 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 that that had to do with specific issues of eating their of their shellfish. day, eating shellfish. And I'll give you a good example. People, the most pressing spot that this is in these days has to do with the homosexual debate, right? Uh, because people will say, "Oh, you, you're not supposed to eat shellfish, and you're not supposed to be homosexual." See, they're all both just ridiculous and done away with, and we should just move on to new things. I would say, but in the new covenant, the the prohibitions against homosexual sex are reiterated by the language in first Tim or sorry first Corinthians 6 that is picked up that is drawing on Leviticus 20 so this is the apostles way of, of saying that yeah all that stuff that we was said about uh, sexual fidelity and sexual wholeness back in Leviticus yeah it still holds all those condemnations to all these different sex acts that are outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage all of those things uh, that were said are still in effect in the New Covenant. Mm-hmm. I don't have that kind of thing for tattoos. I don't. I, I actually... Uh, I, there's a lot of things I don't have that for. This is one of the challenges of the early church, right? I mean, like, here's, mm-hmm. here the Paul comes along, and he starts preaching even so much that you don't need to be circumcised to be believed. Now, that's like mm-hmm. a centerpiece of the law. Mm-hmm. And so he preaches this, and so people now are thrust into this problem because they're saying, wait, Paul, you're an antinomian, meaning that you're you're anti-law. This law, this Mosaic law, which has defined us as a community, you're throwing it under the bus? Mm-hmm. There's no way you're from God. So this is one of the big fights Paul would have. He would say, no, I'm not an antinomian. I'm not against, I'm not with Peter, against law. Mm. What I am saying, though, is that we follow the law of Christ. And so the law of Christ supersedes the Mosaic law. That doesn't mean the Mosaic law is done away with. It means that Christ fulfills the Mosaic law, and then grants, the, and then His new law, the new covenant, actually stands in its place. But can you think of an example of where Jesus got rid of a moral law? Uh, all I can see is where Sabbath. He heightened the moral law. <laughs> Sabbath, the moral law. Well, uh, well, He got rid of the Sabbath, so we don't celebrate the Sabbath anymore. I, there are we people nowadays like to talk about Sabbath. Oh, we need to take Sabbath and stuff. And I know what they're doing with that. They're trying to say the idea of rest. Mm. Right, but we're not Sabbatarian. We we don't believe in this that, that it's a part of the law of Christ to keep the Sabbath, because Christ didn't keep the Sabbath, at least not the way that they did in those days. So is mm-hmm. it good to rest? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Jesus did Himself, but I would say that we're not bound by that. 
Would tithing be? Yeah, in that I, same I would probably throw in the language about tithing. I don't like. I don't think that tithing is a New Testament law, but that's just. I mean, some people we like to talk about our tithes and offerings, and the only place in the New Testament that really talks about tithing, and seems to kind of like in a backhanded way affirm it is Matthew twenty three, where Jesus is accusing the Pharisees, saying, "Hey, you guys tithe tithe the tenth of your dill and cumin, but but you forget the weightier matters of the law, right? Love mm-hmm. and mercy. You should mm-hmm. do." The latter, without neglecting the former, he says. So in other mm-hmm. words, he's not putting down their tithing of the stuff. He, he's saying you, you should be not ignoring the whole. So that's the only place in the New Testament where you kind of have Jesus giving a, a wink and a nod in some ways to the 10% tithing. But then you have all these places where the, the apostles have opportunity to bring up, you know, like Paul's going and he's taking a collection from all these churches and he comes to Corinth, and he, he has a chance to say, you guys should give me money for the church in Jerusalem because it's the law, mm-hmm. right? That the law says that you should tithe this much. Give me, give me the money. But he doesn't. He comes to them and he says, uh, so the gospel is mm-hmm. pretty cool because he who is rich became poor that you might become rich. So I just want you to think about that, that Christ, who is infinitely wealthy, gave up all that he had so that you could be a believer in Christ, so that you could be saved. Now here you sit with your infinite wealth, not infinite, but you have lots of money. What would the gospel call you to? <laughs> so his motivation is a different, it's just a different motivation. Don't do it because the law says so, do it because the gospel compels you. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, so I'm Greg. I'm answering your law. question by saying that I think that the tithing stuff is the motivation for new covenant believers to give is the gospel, mm-hmm. uh, and so I think that does that. Yeah, so I would say that those those laws of the old covenant have have shifted. Then, mm-hmm. yeah, Christ fulfilled all of them, mm-hmm. and now as a result, he's instituted a new law. So that's my shorthand way of saying it. That's great. Hey, thanks for. Uh, participating guys thanks matt for producing you're doing a good job sitting over there quiet and pressing buttons and that kind of stuff uh if you have any questions about anything that was said in this podcast or you have questions just in general that you'd like to throw to the email team, them to paul siemens that's right paul siemens will we'll take them all email them to extra at northview.org and we will throw them into the mix andy why don't you give us a little a little closing sugar you always do the the closing thing for Steiger. Hey, yeah. you know what? Do you know why? Because you're a good closer. Because it you was th- Thanksgiving. You, you throw the high cheese. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. Do you know what I'm referring to? It's a baseball term. It is. Did you know that Andy Steiger was a competitive gymnast? Were you? What'd you mm-hmm. do? I did everything, Greg. Wow. He did the rings thing where you can put your you put your arms yep. straight out on yep. the side and he could like hold himself up in the air. It's a Christian thing to do, the iron cross, buddy. Anyway, with it being what was Thanksgiving the hardest weekend. Thing that you did? Hold on. What's the hardest thing you did in gymnastics? Wearing spandex. Really? Yeah, that's probably the most difficult thing How long thing did, did you do gymnastics? Until uh, first year in college. Wow. wow. Good job. Wow is right. Could you do a little gymnastics for us? <laughs> no, seriously. Could you do a floor routine for us? <laughs> no. Why not? <clears throat> There's many reasons for that. You know what? One of which being that I'm an old man now. God wants you to. (laughs) (laughs) There's my little last uh, little bit there. 